I have a lot more Ratzinger to get through, and yeah. I am in, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Welcome to the episode. We are finally here. It is finally the end of the liturgical cycle, the great feast of Christ the King. I guess as its full title is, The Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. Yeah. Epic title. <laughs> <laughs> a very epic title that we usually shorten to just Christ the King. Yeah. Easier to, easier to say. So that's our theme for today. I guess we'll break down the individual readings because it's very easy to get into them. But remember, before uh, we begin, to if you like this podcast, to please like, comment, share, subscribe, leave us a review, again, so we can combat the algorithm gods. <laughs> if you have a question, please... Uh, Ask us through emailing us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. We'll answer it at the end of the podcast. So what I plan to do here is to combine the sacred and the profane together into the historical background to the Feast of Christ the King. Okay. Combining the sacred and profane, that's a very like incarnational act. Yes, a know? little, it's, you know, <laughs> it's yin and yang. You oh, know, boy. It's, it's eternal and the temporal. Stepping into murky waters here. Yes. All right, I like it. Um, yeah, it, it could get really murky. It could get Gnostic, yeah. but <laughs> we won't go there. So the sacred is the background to the feast that was instituted by Pope Pius the ninth or the 10th, the 11th. Who was it? The 11th. Oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. I went through all of them. No, it was Pope Pius the 11th. And the profane is that the background to this feast, the historical background is... World War One, and the and I guess looming World War Two. So Pope Pius instituted the feast in 1925 with his encyclical Quas Primas to the first or in the first. And it was if again if you know your history, 1925 World War One had ended in 1918, and then World War Two was kind of looming on the horizon, and he institute this feast as a direct response to World War I, that he believed that the West had engaged in these wars because of a growing secularism and atheism, yeah. that men had, in place of God, put themselves in control and saying, we, do, we don't need God. So they kind of thrust Jesus Christ from the public square, mm -hmm. saying that we are, we are the ones who decide good and evil now, not not the church. And sometimes I um, I think, I, I look back at my history lessons and, and World War One for Americans just kind of, it feels like it kind of just comes and goes. Mm. You know, it's like World War Two is like- World War Two is the one that you focus on. Is where like Americans are like, yeah. we're, we're, we're big, we're big, big <laughs> shots in that war. Although, you know, we did very well in World War One as well, kind of entered late. But I don't know if we realize just like how devastating that war was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was, it was truly a, a world war in that, you know, every nation was getting involved and every nation was pulling in their, their colonies even to get involved in the war. They were using new technology, you know, advanced chemical warfare, at least for the time, advanced ke chemical warfare, you planes, tanks, right. you know, kind of rudimentary. The age of industry was like really feeding into that. Um, well, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. yeah. That's part of the kind of world war aspect is – Everyone was involved in the war, yeah. like said, even at home industries. It wasn't yeah. kind of men sent off. It was at home. Everybody was militarized in mm -hmm. some form. 
and then back out. But I mean, I think the end of the war, it claims 16 to 20 million lives. Is that the number? Wow. It's like, and that's, I think it's carnage that the world had never seen before. Right. Yeah. And Carl Jung makes an interesting point that it wasn't just anybody who engaged in this war. It was Christian nations Hmm. who engaged in this war. That's sad. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Shocking. He was saying that these were Western nations that had formed Christendom Mm -hmm. and they went to war and slaughtered each other in the millions with supposed Christian values, like looming Mm -hmm. in the back. But they had completely, as Pope Pius rightly points out, kind of thrust it to the side. So he institutes, Pope Pius institutes this feast to remember that everything is subordinated to Christ. Yeah. All political, including political powers. Everything is below Christ the King. Yeah. Of the universe. It's really interesting how the World War One and Two both stand as kind of like a testament to the failed project of liberalism, essentially. Uh, I think Ratzinger makes this point and how those two world wars essentially, they, they kind of shocked the world in a sense that nobody was really expecting the West to go there. Uh, the West was so free and advanced and everyone was kind of fooled by this idea that we can rule ourselves. Like, you know, we are free. We know better than our ancestors. And war almost seemed like it would never come back, you know, with how how advanced and um, forward-thinking the West is. But I think it's, I, I th- to fall into that trap of liberalism is to forget history and to forget human nature. Uh, without God, man is doomed to war against each other, right? Division is like the first fruits, the first rotten fruits of the fall. Uh, and so, yeah, so I, I think this this idea of Christ the King and remembering that we have a ruler that stands above humanity, um, and that is where true peace is found, right? It's in the kingdom of our Lord where there will be no more war. So it's... Uh, there's a, a, the implications of implementing this um, solemnity in the middle of two world wars is um, is huge. So yeah, because he he certainly saw a, a war on the horizon. You know that things had not truly settled from World War One, and as you pointed out, if you understand human nature, this could happen again, mm. and in fact, did happen again. Much of the world, the kind of postmodern world, comes from World War One. Um, I, I don't know, you know, how many people. I mean, if you get into kind of, I guess, early 20th century philosophy, like you can see the connection. But this is start. This is where you start seeing kind of deconstruction of a lot of uh, antiquity. You know, you, you you start seeing a breakdown of of even things like poetry and mm-hmm. and manufacturing. Um, historians have noted how they you know used to have like these claw footed chairs. Right, like they would have like lion's claws at the yes. bottom of the chairs or something like that are very ornate things, and everything starts moving towards this flat, like radical simplicity. R- yeah, simplicity. Yeah. yeah, and there was just a kind of a, I think a great breakdown of the Western psyche in a way because they had this ideal that 
war would fix this, right? You know, yeah. and everything, all their aspirations kind of fell apart at this. Oh, I can't believe we did this. I can't right. believe we killed 20 million people yeah. for nothing, really. So the feast uh, in the old calendar used to be at a different time, but uh, Pope Paul VI moved it towards the last Sunday of ordinary time in the kind of new liturgical calendar. And I, I think he did this to kind of show that the end of the liturgical year is also kind of the telos of all human striving. Yeah. You know, at the end of time, which is symbolized in ordinary time, the end of ordinary time, there will be a proper ordering of all the nations. Right. You know, it, it, whoever you are, from peasant to king, you will be called before the one true king. Yeah. And it's, we await the second coming of Christ where he will come in glory as king. Um, he will not be hidden in his humility, right? Being born in a manger. Um, when he comes again, there will be a revelation of his kingship. And so it's fitting, yeah, that we begin the liturgical year with his, with um, awaiting his first coming. And then we look forward to his second coming as symbolized in the end of the liturgical year with him as king and lord over all. So it's almost like this this beautiful arc of, you know, yeah. from his uh, infancy all the way to his rule overall. Yeah. I was going to say there's a kind of a horseshoe because, you know, we, we're, we're ending the liturgical year. Yeah. And then the next Sunday, we're starting the wait for his return. Yeah, you know, it's yeah exactly. Like the beginning, end right there. It's so, right they're so far apart that they're close together or something, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay, so shall we get into it? Yes. All right, so our first reading is from Ezekiel. And we have here the image of the shepherd, that God will come and shepherd his people. So this is a very kind of common image for the Bible that we know of, and it's also a common image in ancient sources. So one of the differences, though, is God is setting himself up as the shepherd. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look at the reading, you can note several times where he says, I myself will look after my sheep, or I myself, or I will do this. So in the greater context of Ezekiel, he just, Ezekiel just got done chastising the bad shepherds, Mm -hmm. and he's now contrasting God as the good shepherd who will gather the scattered sheep. Um, Scattered, uh, the word scattered appears two times. So there's this idea that uh, I'm trying to work out this this thought. Maybe you can help me here. That the image of the shepherd is a unifying image because mm-hmm. it seems here that he's, but he's a unifying image, but also one that separates. So yes, he so okay, he's calling together right the scattered sheep, but then it says at the end that he will judge between the sheep, one and the other. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. Between, well, yeah. he says, right, at the end he says, so almost the entire reading is him uh, gathering together um, the scattered flock. And the first thing I'm impressed with is the uh, his determination to act in the flock. And this, this whole passage kind of flies in the face of, um, is it deism? Where, you know, you have the, the, the idea of God as a clockmaker. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And like, right, that the idea that God is removed from the action of man. 
uh, he kind of created everything and he just like lets it lets it do its thing, just like a clockmaker clockmaker would wind up a clock and just let it go. Um, this passage kind of flies in the face of that. Uh, that's the first thing I'm I'm struck with. But anyway, back to your point though. When he's the, the Ezekiel, he's going through this passage. It's all really about gathering together the lost sheep. But then the last sentence, he says, "As for you, my sheep," says the Lord God. I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. And that's where the separation is taking place. And I think, doesn't gathering together imply separation? Imply separation from something else, right? Um, if If there was nothing to be separated from, then you couldn't really say that you can gather something together. It has to be distinct from something else. And so gathering and separating are kind of like two sides of the same coin almost. Okay. I, I like that because it's it's going to go to a point that I want to make in the gospel later. We'll get there. So pin this one okay. about gathering. My head. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Gathering <laughs> also maybe implies a, a division. So he, there's also this idea at the end of that he will, that God will heal the injured, but he will shepherd the sleek and the strong rightly. So, and and this idea of also separating. So it's almost like we have this idea that shepherding rightly with mercy also implies that there will be justice. Mm -hmm. That he's not kind of indiscriminately gathering up everybody, almost, I don't know, a a universalist, like salvation, Mm -hmm. or it was universal salvationist Uh, or something. Universalism? Yeah. Like origins, uh, that whole, like, even the devils will be saved. Right. Or, yeah. Right. right. It's everyone will just, in the end, be gathered together and saved. But it implies here that actually by excluding some, by making a division, is shepherding rightly. Mm-hmm. That 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 idea of justice is not something that is opposed to God's mercy. Right. And especially when you consider that the shepherd the king, Christ himself, is the one who gathers together the flock, that that also implies that he knows the distinction between what is within his fold and what is without without his with what is outside of his fold. Uh, and so to again, like that idea of gathering and scattering are just they're so intertwined, I think. Uh, in order for Christ to make that judgment, the shepherd to make that judgment, um, implies that there's a standard that the sheep have to adhere to, or else right. they will not be part of that flock. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like it's just you know anybody who who wants to focus more on Christ as more of a loving redeemer and a you know comforting image. Uh, you know, I don't know how you reconcile that with the readings today, with this idea of judgment between one sheep and another, between rams and goats, and especially when we get to the gospel. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd like to move on to the psalm because the psalm seems to pick up where the first reading is and amplifies it a bit, mm-hmm. or a- adds a little bit more more to it. Because again, we have the the same image of uh, the shepherd that the Lord is is the shepherd here again, 
happening multiple happening uh, multiple times, or the word appearing multiple times. But it's what uh, there's some great symbolism here of what the Lord does. Mm-hmm. So, for those listening, uh, we are. This is Psalm. 23, the Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I shall want. Very popular psalm. Uh, and, right, and that's the, that's the refrain, right? The Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I shall want. And then it goes through um, the entire psalm. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the the first few verses here, you have the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Inverted pastures, he gives me repose. Besides restful waters, he leads me, he refreshes my soul. So you have, and then at the very end, it, you have that uh, the Lord will spread a table in the sight before my foes. So we have two principal metaphors in the psalm. One is that the Lord is the divine shepherd, and the other is that the Lord will be a host of a sacred meal. So all these symbols that we see here of restful waters, refreshing my soul, the right path, all of these things are supposed to be kind of symbols of the Lord taking great care over the soul, over his people. So we can also kind of spiritualize this in that, or take a mystical sense, mystical interpretation that all we, f- that, that we like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and say so it's in this passage, God is both the shepherd, the path, and the destination, right? He mm-hmm. is both the one who leads you to this these restful waters, but he is also, in a mystical sense, the restful waters themselves. Yes, yeah, that's very interesting. I, th- um, I was going to mention something like that because you have this image of Christ as a shepherd leading his sheep, but there's also another analogy um, that where Christ is depicted as the Lamb of God, right? And and so he himself identifies with the sheep. And, you know, it's kind of a cliche um, phrase to say, you know, you, you, a leader should um, be a servant, right? Or a servant leadership, right? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that um, there's value in that view. And I think that if it's exemplified by anyone perfectly, it's Christ himself. Uh, that the king and the shepherd is not distant from his people and his flock. He is among them uh, within their midst as a shepherd, uh, as a sheep as well. Um, and while he is the one gathering his, his flock and guiding them uh, into the pasture, he is also the lamb who is led to the slaughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that that gives, like, that gives Christ as king so much validation uh, to remember that again he's not distant in our struggles he's not um, arbitrarily waving his you know iron rod um, right not us a where to go tyrannical king yeah but but someone who actually identifies with the sheep um, which we're gonna see again pin that we'll see that in yeah, the gospel that's two pins right yeah, yeah. <laughs> keep track of the pins yes well let's have like a, a little noise that kind of goes off like a bell let people know <laughs> this is this is a moment we're going to come back to but yes this identification of Christ as king or a shepherd but also as sheep yeah as uh, as you said as the lamb of God uh, so you also have the idea of a banquet here with the Lord anointing 
the psalmist's head with oil and his, his cup overflowing. So you have this idea of an, a literal overflowing. His cup is overflowing with God's care and mercy. Mm-hmm. And kind of going back to our historical background again, this is something that only God can give. Only God can give this overabundance of mercy. Right. No political regime or no ideology will give you the same care that God gives you. God leads right. you to – political ideologies may promise what is being uh, symbolized in Psalm 30 – or I'm sorry, Psalm 23, mm-hmm. that you know, ideology will lead you to tranquil waters and peace and calmness. But it's actually only a, a shadow or or a, a poor pale imitation, image, yeah. yeah, pale image exactly. of of what Christ is promising. Yeah, and that's um that's a really good point because what, what Christ gives us is not just enough. Like there's always an outpouring, um, overflow, and it seems on the surface wasteful. You know, you think about the um the miracle of the five loaves and two fishes, and there were twelve wicker baskets left over. It's like, well, why didn't he just multiply enough for the people. Why is, does there have to be left over? But I think that that's the, 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 the fact that there, it, there's baskets left over indicates that he is a God of love and love is never, love never just does enough. It's, it always does more, right? Uh, on the cross, like it's the total outpouring of himself. Could he, could he have redeemed us by, you know, another means that was not so bloody? And some would argue no, some would argue yes. But the fact is, is that the way he saved us is through this um, overabundance, not something that's just enough, but something that overflows. Uh, that's what love always does. Uh, so, yeah, that was a good good um, point there. Should we move on to the second reading? Any other, if you have any other thoughts? Nope. Yeah, I think uh, let's move on to the second reading from uh, Paul to his to the first letter of the Corinthians. Okay, so we're in, yeah, we're in our second reading here, and Paul is talking about this this age to come here, uh, when the Davidic when Christ will return as a Davidic king who has over overcome all these elemental powers and sin and including death. So Paul uses a a a, a kind of technical. Uh, um, let's say Greek. Uh, he uses a technical Jewish term, which is the first fruits. So this is something that, under the law, the first fruits are harvested and then give and then offered to God as right. Thanksgiving, like um, Abel's sacrifice. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Which I, I should have noted at the beginning, kind of the the lineage of of I guess old Hebrew heroes. That were shepherds, and Abel is like the first, right? Yeah, kind of archetypal yeah. shepherd of God's right. people, taking the best sheep, right? Taking, uh, yeah, yeah, right, and offering the best sacrifice as Christ does as well. Yeah, which yeah. we say in the first, uh, uh, can no, the Roman canon, right? That sacrifice of Abel that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel, or is it? No, I'm thinking of um, that's, that's but yes, Hebrews. you're right, yeah, you're right, yeah, anyway, you're right, you're right, anyway. So he, Abel's in there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So he's he's so the first fruits are offered or consecrated to God, and this consecration is being implied here with Christ, right? Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Mm-hmm. So 
in his death and resurrection is kind of the completion of that harvest, that if Christ has offered himself as the first fruits to God, then those who are in him will also experience this total consecration and completion mm-hmm. in the life to come. He also makes a St. Paul also makes an interesting argument talking about this um this idea that Christ is the second Adam. Mm-hmm. Although he doesn't he he calls Christ the, uh, another Adam more explicitly in a different part here than here. But he still mentions but, Adam here. But oh. but he's still saying that so just as in Adam, so too in Christ. Right. And so, yeah, right, that idea of Christ as the second Adam is implicit in saying, for just as in Adam all die, so too in Christ all shall be brought to life. So there's this juxtaposition between right. the first man and, um, and Christ. So Adam is a symbol of kind of the unity of, of all of creation or the unity of, of man. You know, when we talk about sons of Adam, mm-hmm. they're saying that all humanity has come from, has come from Adam. Yeah. So now what St. Paul is trying to make is Christ is that new Adam. So all people, by virtue of baptism, are in the unity of Christ. Mm-hmm. So at what, what Christ has experienced, we too will experience. So because right. Christ or because Adam sinned, all die. Now because Christ has died and been risen from the dead, so too will you. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is interesting because he's in the greater context of this, he's actually making argument for uh, the the resurrection. But we we kind of this this reading kind of chops it up so we don't get that that full understanding. But it's implicit. Uh, the Christ, so each one in his proper order, right? So it says, "So too in Christ shall all be brought to life." There's that um, uh, nod to the resurrection. But each one in, in proper order. So Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so you also get this eschatological um, flavor, mm-hmm. <laughs> for lack of a better for term. Sure. Uh, Christ being the resurrection of Christ being the beginning of the eschaton. And so we're in a very real sense, we're living in the end times where the dead is brought back to life. Uh, death has been defeated, uh, but already and not yet, right? So. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that motif of already and not yet is very apparent here because although Christ has died and been raised from the dead, there still is this kind of warfare going on, right, mm-hmm. of, of death and life and these elemental powers going back and forth. It's yeah, it's interesting because you have a, a contra nihilism here, right, that is – not uh, not fully explained unless you get the whole passage, but I think we can work on it here. Is death is sort of like the the ultimate enemy? We've talked about this a few times. Like it puts it puts an end to everything. Yep. But what Saint Paul is trying to say here is life is either meaningless, right? It's just kind of a a a fun trip that ends in nothing, or Christ has been raised from the dead, and therefore like life takes on. An entirely different meaning, right. and if you're in Christ, you will experience this victory over death as well. Yeah, at your resurrection. Yep. But yeah, that's good. There's um, <clears throat> some scholars have noted that there's also uh, 
sort of a in this particular passage a an apocalyptic drama that's similar to our the Christ poem that we've talked about a few times. Like there's several acts here, right? You have Christ's death, his resurrection, his reign, his defeat of the powers of the world, mm. his second coming, the re- then the resurrection of those in Christ, the handing over of, of authority to his father, and the, this reality of God being all in all. Right. So you have like a, a, a quick Christological like summary here of of the major events of Christ. Yeah. It's kind of incredible that Paul has all these like little narratives that you can just you you can look at each line and expound upon that. Well, I mean, he is the best, uh, the greatest uh, uh, evangelizer. And so you would think that he would have these, like, you know, like, this is what I need to tell these people, right? (laughs) And so this is, yeah, he's he's writing, like, the archetypal um, way to evangelize. It's like, this is what, like, if you have to, if you have a community that you need to evangelize, this is how you do it. Yeah, (laughs) right. This is how you summarize the faith, right, And, and what we believe. I guess words nowadays are kind of cheap because you can just, like, write and write and push out whatever. And tell AI to write it or whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you don't even have to write it now. But I guess, yeah, in the Greco-Roman world where paper and literacy and ink and such were... A little bit more rare. Yeah, a little yeah. bit more rare are, are valuable. You got to say what you got to say quickly. Yeah, you can't, and efficiently. You know, yeah, exactly. You can't write a massive letter and waste time. Yeah. But these quick little summaries help. Yep. Uh, what I really like about this second reading is that it shows um, a hierarchy of all things. Mm. Uh, you know, talking about the greater feast of um, Jesus Christ as king of the universe. He's at the top and everything is subjected to him in a proper order too. Uh, and I, I like how, you know, he says, he, Paul says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's not so much that he obliterates them and they're not to be part of the kingdom. Uh, there's, a, a, there's an acknowledgement of even those who are not part of the flock uh, that are subjected under his reign. Um, and so it's the, the idea of like Lord of all creation uh, that Paul is painting. It's really, really beautiful. Well, even those who are, like you said, not a part of his flock factor into the this hierarchy. Because as he says at the end here, so that God may be all in all. So all this isn't yes. yeah. this isn't a, a pantheism, you know, that but this is to say that all he will draw all things, Christ will draw all things to himself. Mm-hmm. As Christ explicitly says, they will all know God's presence and glory. Yeah. Which again that that that'll come back big time in our in our gospel. Yep, that's really important to remember as well uh, when thinking about the doctrine of hell. Uh, uh, was it I think C.S. Lewis who said that hell the the same fires that ignite hell are the same fires of God's love essentially. And so even those who are separated from the fold experience Christ's reign just in a, in a fallen way. Right? Yeah. Um, and so there is no escaping his dominion. Um, yeah. That's it, almost uh, in an inverse way, as I feel like very Dantean. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Those, those in the inferno 
uh, are, ex- are still kept in existence by God. Yeah. Their being is still there, but it's literally flipped. Yeah, exactly. And that's what um, Augustine says that, you know, Satan, what he hates most about, um, what he hates most about himself is that he was made in, out of love, essentially. Uh, and so there's a, almost a rejecting, rejection of his own being um, because God has dominion over his life, even though Lucifer was free to turn away from that love. Uh, so, you know, whether you're in or out, you can't escape the dominion of Christ. Right. He, he is all in all. So, Yeah, th- there's this notion here, uh, one last point I want to make, of, of kind of a new existence, a new form of life that humanity takes on in the resurrection. That Christ is a new, he's offering uh, a new dimension for humanity. So part of this passage is about tr- transformation mm-hmm. of of what humanity is called to be. And I think we're going to see that uh in the gospel of what is was it what is it that Christ asks from his followers or what does he ask from humanity right. and the last judgment. Yeah. So do you want to um one more point, just sure. a side note, because you brought up Dante, and I remembered um, there was a scene in the Purgatory, uh, in Dante's Purgatorio, where he comes across, as Dante's going up the mountain, he comes across two angels who have swords, and uh, uh, upon further inspection of these swords, Dante realizes that uh, they're blunt, like extremely blunt, like they, like it almost looks like they've been neglected. Um, and Dante asks, why are your swords blunt and they tell him that the fighting is over um christ has already won uh and that that idea of christ's ultimate victory over death that while while we are still going through this valley of tears right we're still uh we're experiencing the not yet part um, right. th- there's a sense of that already um that has been manifested through christ's um victory on the cross um but it was a, I just remember studying that, and it was a very powerful image of Christ's, Christ's yeah. victory. The fighting is done. So <clears throat> I think that is actually uh, a, a perfect representation of, of part of what Paul's getting at here, because he is saying that Christ has been raised from the dead. He's, he is the first fruits, and there is a certain extent to which he is reigning now. Yeah. But there will be a, a <clears throat> final reckoning in which every sovereignty will be destroyed and every power and authority will be brought under his reign. Mm-hmm. But that is a that is a given. Right. Like Christ has has already won that. It hasn't come to its finality, but it will happen. But it will happen. So yeah. the fighting in a sense is is over. Yeah. Cosmologically Co- in yeah. that sense. Yep. Okay. So here we are. The vision of the great judgment, the prophetic climax here, the <laughs> eschatological discourses finally come to an end. We've been talking about it for weeks. Yeah. The and all of the preceding parables kind of lead up to this moment of preparing for the the coming of the son of man. So I think the previous parables were about watchfulness, vigilance, what to do to prepare. But now I would say this gospel is the preparation. there is no more preparation. The the time has come. And so this gospel is about what will happen at the end of times, not so much 
how do how, what will I you know how will I prepare for the yeah, second coming? The time that, that's, to prepare is over. So. Right, the time to prepare is over. So the gospel begins when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all of His angels with Him. He will sit upon a glorious throne. So right away we have uh, another important image. We've had the image of the shepherd. Now we have the image of the Son of Man, and this comes from uh, Daniel. I think, or this this particular image is the Son of Man is is used at other places, mm-hmm. but in in Daniel seven is where you get this this scene of divine judgment. It's it's the Son of Man sitting on a glorious throne, judging I think the beasts of the world, so which are symbols of you know different sin and and death and right you know all those other things. So it, what what we're getting here is uh, an eschatological or apocalyptic vision. And what's important here is you have is the emphasis on his glory. Because it says, the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit upon his glorious throne. So as you mentioned, you know, in Advent, Christ comes in his kind of hiddenness, mm-hmm. right? And he's, he's veiled in humanity and born in a manger, such like that. But here there is no hiddenness. The yeah. nations before him know that he is God and he is the king to which all others are subject. His glory mm-hmm. is sort of unveiled and the revelation of of Christ is is on full display. There's no kind of questioning about who who this is. Mm-hmm. He's he's out there. So the other part is you have uh all the nations will be assembled before him. So this this verb that's being used here is what is known from my Greek studies as the divine passive. And it's where God and his angels do the gathering. So what's implied here is that it is almost a a forceful gathering up of the nations and not necessarily like a free will assembly. It's not the invitation to the banquet anymore. Oh, interesting. You know, kind of preceding parables we had that right it's you know many are called few are chosen yeah here it's clear that whether you like it or not whether whether you can or not you're, uh, you're right yeah. right this is not a scene you know this is a scene of a of a court right mm-hmm. you have god seated on the throne christ seated on the throne surrounded by his angels kind of the, the witnesses and before him all the nations and before him yeah. all the nations and there there wasn't a if you'd like to come yeah right here's the invitation it's yep. no no we have gathered you here yeah. To pass judgment, to, to mete out justice. Yep. So it's, you know, you can take that cosmologically. We can also take it personally or, or individually that when you die, <laughs> yeah. whether you like it or not, there there's a judgment passed. However, as the preceding parables have told us, there is a way to prepare for this right. forceful, um, involuntary appearance in court. Yeah, yeah so, that's good. Um, sorry, any thoughts on that? Or... Uh, no, not yet. Okay. I, yeah. We're, again, we're slowly working through it, so yeah. I was just curious. Um, all right, so then we have, um, let me get this here. So he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So we've had the symbol of son of man, kind of the glorious. Now we're getting the, the shepherd imagery. 
yep. that we've been talking about. Going back to the first reading, especially the last line where he says, I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. Right. So, so th- this is the, the fulfillment of that prophecy from Ezekiel that God himself will do this. Mm-hmm. And that here it is that Christ, you know, the God-man, is now sh- shepherding by separating out. You know, again, he's brought all the nations together. Again, the unity and separation motif. Yeah. He's brought all the kingdoms together to then divide. Right. So it says he places on his right the sheep and on his left the goats. So you have the the classic left and right symbolism mm-hmm. that we love we love to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> or we've talked about before. Yeah, the sword and the shield. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's right. Uh, maybe, I don't know if it's in Spanish, but isn't left in Spanish, doesn't it have a... Esquerda. Yeah. That's the, that's the word for... Because in, in Latin, it's like sinister. Oh, right. Like it's... The, that which is evil, right? Right. Or, yeah. Right. It has. Yeah. It has. Um. It looks like sinister. Right. And there's something about the left that's dirty. That, and yes. Yeah, right. That exactly. is. That is the place of evil symbolically, and you see it throughout ancient literature. Mm-hmm. It's not just um, kind of a something that just appeared in the Bible. It's it's something that is commonly noted as evil. Right. The left is evil. Well, and on the opposite side, you have like the imagery of like my strong right arm, right? The, the right is always identified with uh, power and... Yes. Um, yeah. And that which is good. Kind of a almost... It's interesting. The righteous will be on his right. So it's like this literally the, being and, in the right. Right. And the leftist, righteous. the leftist yeah. will be in the left. <laughs> no, I'm just I was going to say, if you want to take it political, <laughs> you can say leftist, evil, right now. That's no comment. no comment. That's a that's a highly mystical interpretation. <laughs> just to let people know. That's right. Um, but yeah, so you have the right is symbolically uh, you kind of brightness, goodness, and then you have darkness on the left. Mm-hmm. But you're right. If you look throughout scripture, if you look at the Psalms particularly and the um, Old Testament, it is it's always God's right hand, right hand, right hand, right hand. It's never mm-hmm. with my left hand I will. Yeah. Anytime the left is mentioned, it's evil. So I'm going to take the symbolism up a little bit further. Okay. Crank it up. Cranking this up. (laughs) Crank up the symbolism. So in order for – I've been been thinking about this. I feel like this could be very stupid, but – Well, here we go. We'll (laughs) we'll see. So in order for there to be a left and a right – there has to be a right of something or a left of something. There has to be a central point. Yeah. So uh, of this central point, it's right of that. And of the central point, it's left of that. So I'm going to take that Christ the King is the central point. Mm-hmm. He is and, – and center symbolism is the idea of totality and finality. So Christ is the – totality of the universe right mm-hmm. and he, but he's also king of of all that he has absorbed but but from that dividing line he separates good and evil right is, then that makes sense i i would um I, I like to think of it more on a um uh, not so much 2d but three dimensional okay um in a sense that he is the standard overall and you are judged by his by that standard. Okay. And so I think your your analogy still works in that um, as the center or that which um, uh, is a standard for everything, 
things that either adhere to it, adhere to that, or they don't. And that's yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and so for something to fall on the right would mean that it, it fell on the the side by which those things adhere to the standard the most, essentially. Um, and the left would be the opposite of that. Um, this is why I remember um, Peterson uh, broke this down really well, and I think he was getting it from Jung, um, but the idea that Christ is both the Savior and the judge. And those two, um, those two concepts have to exist within the same person because in order to admit that you need saving means that you are judging yourself by some standard. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're falling short of some standard and you need to be saved from that. Yeah. Um, Gosh, how did I forget? That was something I should have thought about out of the podcast, the whole idea of Christ as... Savior and judge. As Savior and judge. Yeah. Um, those two those two concepts, um, they have to exist together. There's no just such thing um, as one without the other. Same thing is true with justice and mercy, right? Like, you, if, if, if you are merciful, then that implies that there is a standard by which you're deviating a little bit for a specific case. Yeah. Um, but that standard is what is just. Right. Um, so... And that goes right back to our first reading again, where you talked about shepherding rightly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Of right. that in order for there to be mercy, there has to be some level of justice Yeah, and, and vice versa. And same here, if, if we're going to have a separation between the left and the right, there has to be some standard by which we are doing that. Yeah, exactly. Which we're going to get into. Well, and, and the standard by which uh, we can say something falls on the right or the left is Christ himself but going off of what St. Paul said, uh, he is all in all, right? And in another place, too, I think it's on the, um, yeah, the, the Feast of the Ascension, where uh, he says that, you know, Christ descended so that he might ascend and so that he might fill all things. And this idea that he has touched every single part of creation by descending to the lowest place of humanity. You know, again, with that imagery of the shepherd is also identify, identifying with the sheep. And we see this, I think, throughout the gospel where the standard by which um, these people are either on the right or the left is by how they treat the lowest of, in society, which Christ identifies with. Right. Uh, you know, when, you, um, when, when did we see you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and clothe you? Uh, amen, I say to you, whatever you did for the least, brother, least, least of the brothers of mine— you did for me because that's who he was while he was on earth. Um, and so he has kind of elevated even the, the lowest part of creation up into himself so that now that becomes the path of salvation for other people. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's. Yeah, no, let's, let's move there. So we have a movement from son of God to shepherd and then now the king. So it says, mm-hmm. the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. When I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Kind of that litany. But the response is interesting, at least I've always felt, which is, Lord, when did we see you? Such and such. And both the righteous and the unrighteous make this response. Mm-hmm. And when the righteous say it, it's almost as if like they're trying to Flee from praise, you know. It's like, oh, w- when did we see you? I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't I, like. I don't know what you're. I, I don't know what you're saying. Like, I, I, 
uh, like they're they're astonished mm -hmm. in a way. But I think we can take several interpretations of this astonishment of Lord Lord when when did we see you? So there's kind of a common interpretation which is, which is that they are amazed at the Lord's goodness, right? That they did so little, but yet they're being rewarded with eternal life. Mm -hmm. I think we could take a more spiritual interpretation, which is almost that the, the Lord hides holy and virtuous actions from people. I know um, Mother Teresa was apparently famous for this, right? Like she would she like like some some incredible thing would happen like a miracle or something that I think she needed like ten thousand dollars one time or something for for some repairs yeah. at at a at one of her or her houses and how she told this priest like we'll we'll get it like we'll get the money by the end of the day and by the end of the day someone showed up with a check <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and the priest would you know and apparently something happened like this also with another like he healing miracle that she performed and would always ask her the priest would ask her. What, 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 like, what, how did this happen or how did you know or anything like that and she would always say no 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 we, we, we don't talk about such things we don't, we don't talk about it <laughs> so I don't know if it's something like this it's like when you serve the poor it's like look at what you're doing and it's like no no don't Lord, Lord when did I see there's almost like this this uh, blindness right well and, and that's interesting because one of the readings that we had in the lectionary over the past um, last week I believe it was um, our, our Lord has said, you know, I, the, I can't remember the parable, but the point was when you have done your task, just say we are unprofitable yes. servants. Yeah. Right? That, that, that's what I was going to go to is another one is, is exactly that, that we have done only what we were told to do. Yeah, exactly. Like and, I, and there's no, there's no vainglory. They weren't doing it for an ulterior motive. They, they knew what they had to do and yeah. were faithful to their task. Um, and that's what it, that's you know if there's any relationship between a king and his, and his citizens, uh, the citizens are just called to be dutiful, right? To to perform your duty as a good citizen under the king. Uh, what more can you you know? Do you want praise for just doing your job? <laughs> so <laughs> right. that's yeah, that's um I I, I had not noticed that um, until you just brought that up. That's interesting. I I, I think that's that's one way. Because uh, right, because it, it makes sense. Like if if the king is saying, "Listen, good job," y you know, your first reaction is like, oh, "Thank you." Not not like, right. uh, "No, no, no, don't." You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like just take the money and go, right? Yeah. Um, but there is a sense of justice again. Um, I think that these that the, those on the right have, um, almost as if to say, perhaps you are thinking about someone else. Like, is there someone else that you should be praising? Right? Um, I, I think they are. They're not in the business of deceiving, especially the king. So, so this is um, this is maybe a stretch here. I'm gonna see if I can find it. Okay, yeah. So, I, I started listening to this, just like random clips of this book, um, forty eight rule, forty eight laws of power. Okay, and it's sort of a. It goes through a list of really Machiavellian ways to go about life. It's, it's, okay. it's not... <laughs> Evil. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah, there's... I mean, not all of them are so bad, but one of the first rules is uh, never outshine the master. Mm. And it, he goes through some historical examples of times in which someone either 
kind of outshined the king because he wanted to be in the king's graces, but it backfired because the king is never outdone. You don't outdo the king. Or someone was kind of inadvertently out, outdone, outdid the king because mm-hmm. uh, they were just naturally better than the king, so people uh, gravitated to them better. Or times where people purposely tried to do better than the king. But all these times, people paid the price. The, the servant paid the price for trying to be better. Mm. I think... Although this that's a that's a rule never outshine the master because the master will become envious and destroy you. I think there's a way to Christianize it, maybe baptize it, and realize that you can never outdo Christ. Don't mm-hmm. try to replace Christ. Yeah. Imitate him, follow him, but never try to be better mm. than he is. So I don't know if the righteous are saying we didn't do it. It's, it's upset because we are commanded to take care of the poor because Christ is in the poor. But there's mm-hmm. almost a sense in which they're saying we didn't do it to be rewarded, right? Yeah. Like like we didn't do it for you to recognize us. Right. Like we're not trying to outshine you here. We just did it because we were told. Right. It's almost like you know not doing not doing good. It almost speaks to the um, uh, inherent goodness of all things where you can just live your life in this free way without thinking like well you know i i am a christian and so that means that i need to find christ in all things and it's almost like this like hackneyed and arbitrary um imposition that you have on your good works instead of just approaching life in in this free way again it's just like this person needs my help and i'm gonna help him because he needs my help like there's a almost like a recognition of just the inherent goodness of other people in need mm-hmm. um, without this, um, you know, having to forcefully Christianize it, for lack of a better term, if that yeah. makes sense. Just yeah. recognizing the goodness of creation and other people um, and wanting to pour out your love for them. So. Right, right. That's kind of the operative principle in the back of your mind is that Christ is in all people, especially the least. So therefore, you help them. Um, kind of that's your motivating principle, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like the forefront. Yeah, exactly. Of, right. you know, of, of what you do. Yeah. So now the wicked respond and they say the same thing. Lord, when did we see you? Now, my interpretation of that is that it's almost as if, it's almost as if they're saying, if we had seen you in them, we would have. Right, yeah. We would have helped them. It's, you know, Which almost goes back to my point there, right? That like, um, just because, like, if if like you know, seeing Christ in the lowest, if that's not, if that's in the forefront, then if you if you forget that, then you're gonna miss your opportunity to love, essentially, right? Right. Um. So yeah, c- continue. No, that that's that's what that's how I take their response. Of we would have done these things, but we didn't see you. If I saw if I saw you, I would do I would do these things. It's again almost the opposite of the righteous who didn't need to see Christ and did and did uh, charity to the least of his brothers. Right. But they needed to see Christ in order to do charity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the response to the righteous is obviously, I mean, I say to you, what you did for the least of the of the brothers of mine, you did it for me, and then vice versa, what you did not do. So this this is 
this is interesting to me because the the final judgment here is not only faith. Right? This is sola, maybe a contra uh, yeah. sola fide. Yeah. Is what Christ is judging here is what you did for the least of my brothers. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I guess I'm not, I'm not going to try to stretch it and say, like, it's a, it's a topic for another time to say, well, are people who do charitable works but without faith, are they saved? That's sure, a, sure. That's a... Another topic for another time. Yeah, that's, that's a huge topic. <laughs> but it seems as though what, what is being said here, though, is that the profession of faith in Christ demanded by, by the Lord in, in this final judgment is a discovery of Christ in the least of men. Mm-hmm. So it's not simply faith, but it's also to profess faith in Christ means to recognize Christ in the in the least. Well, they, yeah, and that's I mean that's um the letters of John are that's like the central theme, like you know he who says uh, he loves Christ God but hates his neighbor is a liar, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it, it's through love action uh, in other people that we show our love for God. Um, again, he says you know if if how can you love how can you love the God that you do not see but hate the neighbor that you do see? Right? Yeah. Same same thing. So I, I would say what what I've what I've thought about these last leading up to this eschatological feast or these past few parables is maybe it's not faith and works, but it's faith and love. Mm. And love expresses itself in works. In works, it has but, to. Yeah. But as soon as you say, no, no, it's faith and works, people you know, they bristle. But it's truly faith and charity. Yeah. And you know, Sarah and I we went to a con- we went to a, a concert the other night, and one of the guy's songs is "Don't tell me, show me how you feel," mm. right? And that's yeah, that's love, right? You, you right. yes, you can tell people, but all, the ultimate expression is actually doing, right? So I, I think that's what Christ is saying: is you will be judged on faith infused by charity, right? Exactly. Like you can't just say that I love you and I I believe in you. Um, what is it? I think it's in their prayer. It's like, Lord, I, you know, I believe, I love, and I hope in the, you know. And I have a big pardon for those who do not believe. Yeah. Well, there's another one because that's like the, the reparation. The, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> there's no one that's like, help me to do those things. Like, help me to not just, I, I do believe, I do love, and I do hope. But help me to act to act on my belief, act on my love, act on my hope. Yeah. So to, right. to, to embody it. Right. And, you know, there is a sense of hope also, like, you know, because you, you said faith faith and charity. I think the missing theological virtue, of yes. course, is hope. But I think hope is also implicit here when it, through your faith, you act out in charity. Hope is underlying that action that your your act of love will not just fade away in the wind, right? It, it won't be destroyed by nihilism, right? That it's all meaningless, when you give food to the hungry, it might be easy to just despair and say, well, he's going to go hungry in six hours again. You know, like, why am I even doing this? But there's this sense that like, no, my charity actually is stronger than death. And and it can actually, you know, a, as we're seeing in the gospel, it actually, uh, to you, to borrow gladiators words, right? Echoes in eternity, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, lo- that, a love stronger than death. A love stronger than death. Yeah, exactly. No. Uh, as a psalm of, psalm of, song of songs? 
Yes. Says that? Yeah. Um, and that's hope. So. And that, that's uh, our reading from last week is that you hope that, you know, you hope in God's promises that you will, you will be rewarded mm-hmm. um, on, for your faith and your charity. Yeah. That these are not meaningless actions or, or he said something thrown into the wind, but something that will actually be in the end revealed. Yeah. As as uh the foundation of your hope. But yep. So you know, as Ratzinger says, it's um an introduction to creation to Christianity that you know, a faith that is the, that does not have love is not really a Christian faith. You know, it's something something else. Yeah. It, but it's not it's not Christian faith. So talking a little bit more about this least of the least of my brothers and Ratzinger again. Ratzinger stuff is so good. It's yeah, just, I got, like, I, every time I read them, I'm like, man, I, I should just read this exclusively. Yeah, the rest of my I, life. I have a but, lot more Ratzinger to get through, and yeah. I am, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> so. so Ratzinger, in Introduction to Christianity, he has a part in his book called Christ the Last Man. So he, Ratzinger asserts that the Christian faith is one that believes that Jesus Christ is the exemplar. Man, he's the the ideal man. So he's the man who oversteps the bounds of humanity. He becomes and show and shows that man is more himself when he is for others. Mm-hmm. To be truly human is to not be selfish, but to be self-giving, to be self-sacrificial, yeah. open and in love. Yeah. Exactly. And so Christ shows that perfectly on the cross. But there's 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 more to this kind of Christ as, as the last man that it's so, it's it's sort of a, a contra Nietzsche point. If, if, you know, we've talked about it before. Yeah, Ratzinger is using that term um, on purpose because, right. as you pointed out, it's it's a Nietzschean term, the right. last man. Right. Yeah. It's because he talks about Christ as th- this last man and, and the future man. And, and, and Ratzinger is in sort of a more or less dialogue with Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. He does it sometimes explicitly, but oftentimes not. But this this last man for Nietzsche is the antithesis of the overman, the, the ubermensch. So the last man represents a, a future state of humanity where people are complacent, they lack ambition or, or great aspirations. They prioritize being comforted yeah. and being secure. The weak. And yeah, the, yeah, exactly. The weak, the the those who are bound to conformity. Whereas the last man, or I'm sorry, the, the ideal man, the future man is the Ubermensch, who is the exact opposite of self-creativity, self-overcoming. Right. He's self-made. The, self-made. So, yeah. he, he can create his own values. He doesn't need conformity to tell him otherwise. But what, what Ratzinger is saying is Christ is in the weak. Yeah. He, it, he, it's, in some sense, it's like Christ is... The image of a weak man. Is the yeah. image of the weak man. Yeah. Right? As on the cross, like a man who is stripped of nothing, dying for those who don't care for him. It's like that's the face of the new of the new man. Yeah. Of new humanity. And I remember reading that part in um, Introduction to Christianity, and I really love the way Ratzinger framed it as, you know, humanity, we're looking forward to the next evolution of man. And, you know, Nietzsche tried to perceive it with his idea of the Ubermensch. You know, as a society, we're moving 
we're advancing in our technology uh, and our, a lot of our ideas are very progressive. And it seems like it seems like we're getting very close to overcoming death on natural terms, right? And so the, the question is, what is man going to look like in the future? Especially, and you know, Ratzinger wrote this book in the 80s. Uh, so it's interesting to see now in 2023, you know, with these ideas, these like neural links and like um, people talking about healing blindness and cancer. It does seem like we're on a threshold, but Ratzinger rightly pointed out that the next evolution of man is Christ and, and, and that idea of the last man is that it's only by letting go of yourself that you then overcome death. And that's, that's the evolution of man where you transcend um, the biological um, and open yourself up to eternal life. Um, and that's what everything is trying to push towards. But without Christ, that's impossible. Um, as we saw in the beginning of the episode, when we were talking about um, uh, the, uh, the West trying to be free from the shackles of tradition and the shackles of Christianity, uh, moving more towards a, a liberal, non-religious society, only led to the greatest world wars that we've ever right. known. Um, Which Nietzsche said would happen. Yeah. And he said, you will see right. wars like you've never seen Yeah, once you fully embrace this this death of God. Right. <clears throat> but he saw that as like a necessary step to achieve right. the, the evolution of man into the ubermensch. Right. Yeah. Because you're right. The, the evolution of humanity would eventually produce some overman, some ubermensch yeah. eventually. I think... I don't know. I, I thought I read this somewhere that in on in the German trenches they were giving and in World War One they were giving copies of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, mm. which is Nietzsche's kind of poetic yeah. book and where he has some foundational ideas. I, I believe the Last Man. Yeah, the Last Man is in. Is it? Is in that? Okay. Thus Spoke Zarathustra, but in kind of typical. Christological fashion, it's interesting that Christ unites both of these, right? He's both the last man. And the first. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and the first man. And he's right. he's both the least of his brothers, but he's also seated on a glorious throne. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. at the moment of defeat, he's triumphant. You know, he's he's dying on a yeah. cross. He's a shepherd and the sheep. Yeah, yeah right. He's the shepherd yeah. and the, he's the sheep. He's he's the shepherd, the king, and the glorious son of God. He, you know, he's, he's all of these things. Yep. But you're right. What Christ is saying, I think, in the final judgment is, "I, I am the, I am the last man here. I, I am in the weakest, and you, who are blessed by my Father, are those who embrace me as the last man. Yep. You, who see yourselves as weak. Yeah, exactly. And therefore help others. Exactly. Um, the citizen modeling themselves off of the king. Um. I don't know if you had more thoughts, but I did want to say one of my um, one point I really wanted to get out before um, we end is how fitting the image of a shepherd and the image of a king are um, as figures that ga- gather people around them. Because uh, at, at first, you, the the image of a shepherd does seem kind of lowly. Um, and the image of a king is very glorious. It's the most glorious image we have. Um, but they share more in common than we would think. Um, 
And the idea is to gather all things together. A king, a good king, binds his people um, in a way in which people who are not of this king's kingdom can say, oh, you know, you must be part of that kingdom because of the way you act and the way that you, like, think. Uh, There's a sense of this unity uh, that kings... That, that a good king is supposed to emulate. Um, well, you're, you're kind of under the banner. Under the banner, on, on, yeah. Of that king. Yeah. yeah. In the old sense, right? Like right. you carry the king's colors or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. And the sheep are under the staff of the shepherd, if you want to use the same analogy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think combining all these images here at the final judgment of son of God, king, and shepherd is is very fitting because as as son of God, he has the right to separate mm-hmm. the sheep from the goats. He has kind of the, the ultimate authority and the ultimate knowledge about who belongs where. Yeah. Right? He has the ultimate discerning to pierce and to divide. But then as king, he unites everyone together, like you mm-hmm. said, under um, uh, under his banner, the sheep under his banner. But then as shepherd, he, I think you're right, as it's sort of this lowly self-giving aspect yeah. that he shows that he is not a tyrannical king. He hasn't forcefully gathered gathered everyone else and meets out punishment and, and judgment, but he actually is saying, I came among you as, as the least. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, 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 I'm not a tyrannical king. I'm one who, who gives myself up. Mm-hmm. So the final, final sentence here is these will go off to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. So this is, again, different than our previous parables that sort of ended with this... Stay awake. Stay awake. Be ready and prepare. Be ready. Yeah. Be prepared. Yeah. So will it be done. It's the, the final sentence here is forever. You know, that's what the Greek really emphasizes. It's, it's into the ages of ages. Yeah. So the punishment will be forever, but the life will be forever. Mm-hmm. So this is truly... The final judgment. Yeah. Not it is not a parable of sorts. It's it's this is this is the end of all things, the culmination of all things. Yep. One last thing I'll I'll mention too is that uh, this the those who go off into eternal punishment and those who go to eternal life, this is not an arbitrary um, exacting of power. Uh, you know, there's a line here in this gospel where where the Lord is talking to the right and he says, inherit, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Almost like this is the way the world is um, built, right? Like these are natural things. And Paul says this too, that all things were created through him. And so the model of Christ is the model of all creation. Uh, and so we can understand that, you know, again, going back to this idea of Christ as a standard and people either falling to his left or right, um, that's that's who he, he is. He, You know, in a sense, he cannot change his nature. And so this is not, again, this is not just a king seated on a throne, like arbitrarily choosing who goes in and out. Um, but it's implicit in, in, again, as our Lord says, from the foundation of the world. So. Yeah, this is this is the pattern that has been established Forever, yeah. You know, and through Christ, through through Christ, yeah. yeah, right, yeah. As Christ as the logos, right, the mm-hmm. the word, the the logic, the the pattern, 
through which all of creation has been made from the beginning. Exactly. This is this is truly the last ev- evolutionary step of man is revealed that from the foundation of the world, this is how man is to live. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Well, that's good for now. There's so much more to say, but there is. But thus ends year A. Yes. Uh, that's yeah. That's right. Yeah. So we're gonna get into Advent. Um, yeah. Next week is is Advent. We yeah we'll be done with Matthew for a while. Yeah. I I really like the Gospel of Matthew. It's one of my favorites. But well, that's I mean that's just kind of the gold standard. Um, it really is. Yeah. I, I I'm partial to Luke. I like John too. Mark, I, I hate to say it. Mark is probably my least favorite. Um, <laughs> a low <for>, Christology. <laughs> yeah, a low. <laughs> the Mark in Christology. Yeah. So you're um, not a Mark in priority kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm more of a Q source man. <laughs> yeah. If you know, you know. If you know. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. It, it's B. It's B. Mark. The the primarily yes. from the Gospel of Mark, yep. and, and then C, C is, Luke. is Luke. Yep. Okay. And John is sprinkled throughout the major celebrities. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you yeah. just get a little, a little taste of little taste, that yeah. high theology. <laughs> yeah, high Christology as opposed to low Markan Christology. Yeah, we can't, we couldn't do a whole year of of John. That'd be too much. Yeah, yeah, we'd be overwhelmed. <laughs> no, yeah. So next time you hear this podcast, it will be the first Sunday of Advent. Yes, crazy year B. Year B. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate the support. Again, if you have any questions, please email us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week. <laughs>